Welcome to episode 511 of the podcast devoted to the classic and uh, sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm talking about Monster Kid Radio. I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. And I'm excited about the show this week for a few different reasons. Number one, we are playing some music this week from a surf band from China. I don't think we've ever played music from China here on the show before. I'm excited about the song. I'm excited about the music. I think you're going to dig it, but uh, I don't speak Chinese. And I don't want to butcher the name of the song or the album. So I've got my monster in the machine pulling it up for me right now. It's going to say it for me. So, uh, yeah, what is the name of the song, Monsters? And that translates to Murder in Dream, and it comes from the album which translates to Unforgettable Surf Song Number 1. The name of the band is Coastal Surf Club. You can find them on Bandcamp at coastalsurfclub.bandcamp.com. Now, I did speak to a member of the band uh, by email last night, and unfortunately, the way things are working out in China right now, they're not able to access Bandcamp on their internet. So. I don't know if any of the money they make off Bandcamp is going to get to them, but on the off chance that it does, check them out when you get a chance. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you, and maybe even consider picking up the digital album for $3. There will be a link in the show notes, and you'll hear the song in its entirety at the end of this episode. So that's what I'm excited about, number one. Number two, we've got Kenny, and we've got Mark waiting in the wings with their segments. We've got Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland, a little bit of a biography about William Castle, and Mark Matsky's got the Beta Capsule Review. He's talking about an episode of Ultra Q that doesn't really have a giant monster thing going on. It's really interesting. So I think you're going to enjoy those. Three, I've got returning guest Nicole Cushing, no relation, coming back to the show. And four, we're finally talking about a William Castle movie again here on the show. It's been way too long since we've talked about William Castle here on Monster Kid Radio. So I'm really excited about that as well. And now for something that I'm not too excited about this week. Those of you who are part of the Monster Kid Radio community on Facebook. If you are friends with any of us that are part of the community that you guys and gals have helped build around the podcast, you've probably already seen this news. Frequent guest of the show, friend of the show, Tim Durbin left us yesterday on Wednesday. He had been fighting cancer for like seven years now at this point, and it just came to an end. Wednesday morning. Uh, he was with his mother, uh, from what I understand. Uh, he wasn't alone when it happened. Um, but yeah, it, it's not news that I wanted to see. A couple of weeks ago, I actually reached out to Dan Day Jr. because I realized I hadn't seen anything from Tim on Facebook for a couple of weeks. And I knew that Dan and Tim talked a lot more than Tim and I ever did. I didn't know how to get a hold of Tim outside of Facebook or email. So Dan tried reaching out to him and said he didn't hear back from him. Uh, and then, a few days later, we got the news. Um, I'm not going to tell you that I was super close with Tim. I don't think that's fair to say. I spent several days with him over the past couple of years at Monster Batch. And of course, I had him on the show three times where we talked about recently the movie The Bamboo Saucer. He introduced me to the movie Two on a Guillotine, which I loved. And he's also the guy that brought the most dangerous game to the show, which is not a movie that I would even consider talking about on Monster Kid Radio, at least at the time I didn't think I would. So 
you know, I, I have to thank him for that. I have to thank him for a lot. He really did support the show in his own way. He sent me, and I think I've mentioned this before, but he sent me a massive spreadsheet of thousands of genre films. What he had done is compiled, and I don't know if he went to the Internet Movie Database or what, but he had compiled a massive list of pretty much every genre picture he could find. From the silent era all the way up to, well, past anything NKR would do. And it was an impressive bit of work because it wasn't just a list of movies. It was the movies, the year, the studio, all of that. And he didn't just send it to me and call it good. This was unprompted. And then just as unprompted, he sends me another email saying, hey, by the way, sorry, here's an update with more information. (laughs) Who does that? I'll tell you who does that. Somebody who cares about film and cares about the genre that we care about so much. Tim maintained a couple of blogs, viewing the classics in particular, talked about films, horror films, genre films, that sort of thing. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. And of course, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to the episodes of Monster Kid Radio that he was on. And, you know, I just, it's not fair, obviously. You know, Tim was a good dude. Like I said, I only spent a few days with him over the past few years in person. But even in that limited interaction that I had with him, I couldn't help but get a feeling of warmth and and cheer from him. He was a soft-spoken guy. He was unobtrusive. He's one of these guys who, you know, he was not in your face. He was not loud or rambunctious or anything like that. He was just a solid guy. But I hope nobody mistook that soft-spokenness, that willingness to just be and listen for disinterest because the guy had a way of lighting up a room. And I know that sounds really cliche, but he really did. When you saw him walking around the corner at Monster Bash, there was just this kind of this lightness that he brought with him, this love, this joy for what we were celebrating there and just being a good guy, you know? Uh, Tim was a father. I'm not sure what the situation is going to be there uh, with his family and all that. I, I hope arrangements are being made. And if anybody knows of anything that Monster Kid Radio can help with in terms of like making announcements or directing people to a GoFundMe or, or, or anything like that, please let me know because I'd be happy to share it with everybody here. Uh, because Tim was one of us, man. He's one of our own. And we want to do whatever we can to, uh, you know, memorialize him, I guess support his family, his, his close friends and family in this time. I'm not going to forget Tim. Tim made a huge impact on, on me in just those few times I interacted with him directly. Uh, we're going to be dedicating an upcoming project to Tim, a project that he was involved with. So that'll be happening. And that spreadsheet that I was talking about, I, I consult that on a regular basis to help guide the show as well as the two movie streams that I host. He's not going to be forgotten in any way, shape or form. I do wish that I had gotten a chance to spend more time with him. I am incredibly saddened that because of the state of the world last year, Monster Bash being canceled and everything else, it robbed us all of an opportunity to spend just a little bit more time with him. Tim, you're going to be missed. Thanks for everything, and I hope you can rest easy, my friend. Let's go ahead and get on with the rest of the show. Somebody here expecting you? Nobody. You mean you're going to stay here all by yourself? Yes. Well, good luck. This pretty young lady is having a nightmare. 
nightmares can be terrifying experiences. But eventually you wake up and the demons and monsters and menacing shadows disappear. This girl isn't so lucky. When she awakens, she'll discover that her demons are very real and they mean to destroy her. She must be careful, very careful. Whatever happens, she mustn't lose her head. Connie Stevens and Dean Jones, two young people in love, full of fun and gaiety, the joy of living. But now she must return to the dark house. She must learn its ghastly secret. Blade has claimed one victim already. Soon there'll be two on a guillotine. Mr. Sardonicus. What makes his name strike terror? Sardonicus. Why were you frightened? Uh, sir, you would not understand. You are young. You do not yet have daughters. Why does his wife live in abject fear? If you do not heal him, he will punish me. Surely he wouldn't beat you. His cleverness knows a more hideous torture. What strange attraction did young women have for him? What secrets are hidden behind his doors? Mr. Sardonicus. His deeds form the fabric of nightmares. His face, the face of Sardonicus, can be described only in the eyes of its beholders. Sardonicus, in spite of all his cruelties, some people will think he deserves mercy. Others will feel that no punishment could be too severe. When you come to see Mr. Sardonicus, you will receive a, a ballad like this. At a certain point in the picture, you will vote thumbs up or thumbs down. His punishment will depend on the result of your vote. want to kill me if anything happens to us and it looks like an accident he gets his hands on five million this is very serious barnaby where's the sergeant's gun i don't know i didn't take it your uncle's trying to kill you right let's kill uncle first Let's kill Uncle before Uncle kills everyone. You've heard of Homicide. Now see a little Uncle Side. Good heavens. What's the matter? Fuel tank's empty. 
like the end of the game for both of us. Here we go. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. A little girl named Lily is the star attraction of the Great Eastern Magic Troupe. As part of the act, she's hypnotized, causing lifelike images to appear in the theater. But what else does she do in this hypnotized state? The answer is hinted at in the title of Ultra Q's 25th episode, The Devil Child, which aired for the first time on June 19, 1966. A series of random accidents during which unrelated objects go missing raises suspicions around town and in the newsroom. After taking in a performance of the magic troupe, June, Ipe, Yuriko, and Dr. Ichinotani begin to theorize about the division of the body and the soul, going so far as to experiment on Ipe. But the common denominator in the accidents seems to be little Lily. Could she really be to blame for the wave of death and destruction? The Devil Child was actually the third episode to be scripted and filmed, and the script by Kyoko Kitazawa is particularly tight and sophisticated. In its early pre-production stages, the show was called Unbalance, so it's fascinating to see the concept of bioelectric unbalance dealt with directly on screen. Guest starring in the role of Akanuma the Magician is Yoshio Kosugi, a veteran actor with over 130 credits to his name. His distinctive, expressive features were put to full use in productions such as The Hidden Fortress, Seven Samurai, Half Human, where he played the villain Oda, The Mysterians, Mothra, King Kong vs. Godzilla in a memorable role as the Chief of Pharaoh Island, a similar role in Mothra vs. Godzilla as the Chief of Infant Island, a part he reprised in Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, and Frankenstein Conquers the World. Born in 1903, he passed away March 12, 1968, less than two years after his appearance here on Ultra Q. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting.
is the fantastic motion picture record of the search for the mountain creature of Asia, whose name has become a symbol of terror and mystery. The abominable snowman. This is the claw that reaches out to kill. And this is the footprint in the snow, so astounding that scientific laboratories throughout the world are rocked by its startling impact. This is a mole taken from the footprint found outside the cabin door. By measuring the width, the length, and the depth of the print, their composite picture described the species as being nine feet tall and weighing around 1,800 pounds. What did Tanaka say? Well, he was convinced in his mind that the hair follicle was closer to that of man than to that of any other animal known to exist. Now you can follow the relentless pursuit of a half-human monster whose earth-rocking fury broke the torturing bonds of his civilized tormentor. Half-human, he learned the terrifying power of fire over the natives who worshipped him. Half-human, he set off an avalanche of destruction against the invaders of his mountain kingdom. still felt the surging need for human love. Gorilla God of the Jungle Paradise, destroyer of cities. Godzilla, indestructible behemoth from prehistoric time, released from an icy tomb to pulverize a panic-stricken world. Now, for the first time, in one awe-inspiring motion picture, they meet the mightiest monsters of the ages, King Kong, Godzilla, locked in the most titanic battle of all time. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We saw highlights of an article on today's film, 13 Ghosts, when we examined FM8 during MKR441, October 17th of 2019. For today's segment, we are going to look at a bio that FM published in FM33 from May of 1965 on the director of today's movie, William Castle. Let's look at some fun facts and highlights found in the 10-page 13-photo article. Here is how he got his start in show business. At the ripe old age of 15, New York-born Bill decided to become an actor and promptly landed his first speaking role by representing himself as a nephew of Sam Goldwyn. He was given the part of a clam digger in an ill-fated play called Ebb Tide. Strangely enough, when stage fright struck him speechless and he stepped on a tack as he made his entrance, the resulting contortions were hailed by at least one critic as fine acting. And Variety reported, William Castle, as the simple-witted, stuttering clam digger, was the only mentionable actor. Castle continued working on the stage, but went behind the scenes as a stage manager and director. He also worked in radio. Columbia Pictures caught wind of him and offered him a contract and an opportunity to learn from greats like George Stevens and Charles Vidor. 
He worked on westerns and noir films for Columbia and Universal until 1955. At the close of his second Columbia contract in 1955, Bill formed his own production company, William Castle Productions, and launched a series of very macabre films, the first appropriately titled Macabre. Macabre was in the nature of a horror mystery, laden with several actually terrifying scenes. Few were able to guess the identity of the monstrous murderer before it was revealed in the end. This was rather primitive in comparison to his more recent ventures, but it was nevertheless a success at the box office. Everyone in the audience was given a $1,000 policy issued by Lloyds of London, insurance against being scared to death by macabre. After that, he continued in the horror combined with gimmick genre with House on Haunted Hill, The Tingler, and then today's film, 13 Ghosts. After that came Homicidal and Mr. Sardonicus. Three comedy fright fests followed with Zots, The Old Dark House, and 13 Frightened Girls. He returned to straight horror with Straight Jacket. The article concludes with a brief look at the latest film for release and another on deck for future production. The most recent of these high-grade horrors is The Night Walker, in which the chilling terror creeps quietly from the screen as the audience follows in the footsteps of a dream, which suddenly becomes a nightmare. The castle hallmark of sudden shock is there too. And as we reach the climax, the impact is literally shattering. Next on Bill's agenda is I Saw What You Did, based on Ursula Curtis's novel of teenage terror, Out of the Dark, with screenplay by William McGivern. At the moment, Castle isn't divulging much of the dire doings he has in mind, but we will be able to see for ourselves before long. There is no doubt that the tongue-tied youngster who began his career in show business by stepping on attack has since developed the knack of talking to people as he now spends a great deal of time on the road, meeting his fans. And his many fans obviously feel that he is one of today's foremost American producers and directors of movie horror, who says frankly, I'd rather scare the daylights out of people than anything. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Your attention, please. During every suspenseful moment of the running of the motion picture macabre, the life of everyone in this theater will be insured by Lloyds of London for $1,000 against death by fright. However, even Lloyds of London will not grant coverage for any person with a known condition or for suicide by any member of the audience. No, what has he done, Polly? Tell me. Go on. She's not dead. Not yet. That she's in a good big coffin for her. Don't worry about being scared to death. Your heirs will collect after you've gone. Where is she? Where is she? I can hear her breathing. Where is she? Bring someone with you to see this motion picture. You'll want some live hands to hold during the performance. And you won't want to go home alone after it's finished, if you're able to go home. And we won't worry about your telling anybody the ending of this picture. 
because you may not be around to tell. These are the living members of its cast. If you meet any of them in a dark alley, we advise you to scream for help if it's not too late to scream. From the loneliness and simplicity of an isolated farm to the sophisticated elegance of a country estate, Straight Jacket mounts to a crescendo of electrifying suspense. Sinister. <gasps> Frightening. Bill! Bill! Don't you go in that room! Joan Crawford in a shattering screen portrayal. A frantic woman pressured by straight jacket tension. Leave me alone! You let go of me? Listen to me! Just call me Lucy. I wouldn't like my little girl to think I was trying to take her fellow away from her. Carol and Michael are going to be married! And nobody's gonna stop it! Ingeniously designed to shock and startle, Straightjacket may go beyond the limits of your ability to endure suspense. Mother! He's gone. Tell me. Oh, my God! The author of the famed novel, Psycho. The director of the widely acclaimed chiller, Homicidal. The co-star of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Join forces to create a frightening classic of shock and suspense. First time in screen history, a special interval will be provided during the running of this picture for refunding your admission. If you're unable to stand the almost unbearable suspense, the almost paralyzing shock of homicidal. <laughs> This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. 
It has been way too long since we've talked about William Castle here on the show. Heck, I don't even remember the last time we did. I know we have. But I know we haven't talked about this movie. We're talking about the movie 13 Ghosts with Bram Stoker award-winning author, Nicole Cushing. No relation. How's it going, Nicole? It is going wonderful. I'm. It's a winter wonderland uh, down here in southern Indiana and a great time to put some blankets on, get under the covers, and take in a wonderful, spooky fun William Castle movie. Well, see, for me, anytime's a good time for a fun William Castle movie. But I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Perfect snow day material. There, there you go. There you go. Yeah, 13 Ghosts. What a neat little movie. And, you know, I know I've seen this movie before, but it has <laughs> been so long. I forgot a lot of the details. So it was a real treat to watch it again last night. And, I mean, Nighttime's the best time to watch a William Castle movie, winter or not. Uh, I had a really good time just kind of rediscovering it and reacquainting myself with it. What a fun film. I'm so glad you reached out to me to want to talk about this movie. Yeah, in a similar vein, I think I saw this movie first, actually, like in either the late 90s or early 2000s. I was at the time dating a guy who uh, had fond memories of watching the film when he was a child. I know I have a vague recollection of the scene involving the lion from that period, but I I don't know even how that would have worked technology wise, whether they would have provided glasses uh, for like a VHS or a DVD or something to help that process with the the gimmick in the film, uh, which we'll talk about, uh, I suppose, in due course. But I remember have a vague recollection of it then. And then recently uh, at the bookstore where I work, there was a Mill Creek Blu-ray collection of William Castle Blu-rays that came in. And I, of course, had to snag it. And I have watched 13 Ghosts and, and watched it, I guess, twice in the last maybe month or two, most recently, just to reacquaint myself with it. And yeah, there are aspects to, of the film that I don't remember from before. I think the thing that that sticks with most people is the visual of the ghosts, but there's a lot more going on in terms of the family dynamics, in terms of some of the uh, human wrongdoers who appear in the film, in addition to the supernatural aspects of the film as well. It's an interesting mix, and I had forgotten the ease with which the characters just kind of accept, yep, there's ghosts. There's just no disbelief whatsoever. Oh, there's a Ouija board. Let's use that. Let's talk to ghosts. Nobody right. seems to have a problem with any of this. And I, I just can't imagine a haunted house movie being made today where everybody's just accepting of the whole, oh yeah, there's ghosts. No big deal. Whatever. Right. Or, or, or the, or on the contrary, sometimes what happens is they have this blatantly supernatural thing occur you know, where things are like floating in the air in front of them. And then immediately afterwards, the wife will be trying to talk herself out of it, you know, and saying, well, it, you know, obviously that was some kind of, you know, misunderstanding. We were just kind of, we, our mind plays tricks on us. It's like, obviously it just kind of floated around. So they, they had extraordinary evidence of the paranormal in their house. So it, it's interesting. I, part of me is waiting for like the small town monsters production in which we see like the Plato Zorba haunting, you know, case, uh, you know, examined in detail or something. That would be fun, right? <laughs> uh, 
because you have all the ingredients of a paranormal investigation. You have poltergeist activity and you have seances and Ouija boards and all that kind of thing. I love the small town monsters documentaries and, and everything. So, but yeah, it, it has all these different aspects of, and then it has almost like a little bit of a film noir aspect to it in just a tiny little bit with uh, some of the financial shenanigans that are going on. And then when you combine that with William Castle's just sense of playfulness, this exuberant playfulness that you see in this film that just kind of bubbles over and is contagious. And some of the, the interesting casting that he did as well, it really makes this a really fun movie to watch. I think for people who aren't familiar with William Castle, it's easy to just kind of write him off as, ah, he made these monster movies with the gimmicks or whatever. But the truth is... He knew what he was doing as a director. He was a competent, more than competent filmmaker. He cut his teeth doing film noir, westerns, all this stuff before he started doing all these genre pictures and continued to work in non-genre stuff as well down the line. The guy knew how to work film set, and that is fully on display here. Yeah, and doing it with actors, I mean, you know, with the the one exception of Margaret Hamilton, who, of course, appeared as the Wicked Witch of the West Mm -hmm. in The Wizard of Oz. You have her, and she she has kind of like I guess, and at least to our generation, has like a name and a and a presence and some notoriety. Most of the actors were uh, folks who ended up doing, I think, for the most part, journeyman work in television up up through like the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was able to get something really cool out of them, and I think that's another uh, testament to his skill. And also, he never winks at the camera, really, even though there's a fun spookiness. He never kind of descends into self-mockery or he's never trying to be too clever. He's never trying to go consciously over the top uh, or anything like that. He never descends into self-parody. The story always takes itself seriously on its own terms. But there is a little bit of goofiness that kind of intrudes, not intrudes, but it's kind of a compliment. It's kind of like a a subtle um, stew here where we have a little bit of goofiness and we have a little bit of genuine, you know, shocking scenes and genuinely, genuinely effective jump scares and this kind of thing. Yeah. If there's any winking of the camera happening, it's William Castle himself in the introduction or the, or the outro, the film itself, the story itself, it's played pretty straight. It's just, Hey, it's a ghost story. Enjoy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what I appreciate about it is it's not overly thinky. It's not overly silly. It's that kind of nice in-between. And there are all kinds of just wonderful visuals that make it a pleasant journey. For sure. For sure. And I think you're right. When, as soon as you see Margaret Hamilton, you're like, oh, yeah, it's it's the witch. You know, I mean, that's right. what we know her as, right? And they even right. kind of play on that a little bit by calling her a witch in the movie or whatever. That's probably mm-hmm. the only kind of sly, like, huh? See, we got a witch kind of moment in the whole thing. And even that's played pretty straight. Yes, exactly. And she's fantastic in this, man. I, oh, she is. I feel bad for her sometimes when I see her in other things and she's portrayed as this kind of dour, kind of this witch-like character. But man, she was good at it. She was. I mean, she found one thing that she was good at and she stuck with it. And, you know, that's like, I guess for a lot of character actors, that's kind of how they make their living. And she always had that kind of spinsterish. You know, Elvira Gulch, I think, was the character's name at the beginning of The Wizard of Oz. Uh, (laughs) Always had that going on. But 
here she's able to be, I mean, she's not completely menacing. There's at least that going on for her. Mm-hmm. And she, I mean, I just smiled and during, there's a seance scene where she's kind of summoning a spirit and she's saying, Dr. Zorba, Dr. Zorba. And it's just so kooky in a sense, but it's also just fun. I, I just smiled during that seance scene because it was, you have Margaret Hamilton, you know, leading a seance in this 1960 film in black and white with all the fun that kind of goes along with that. And it's just very, I, I just love that scene. This is one of the best scenes. I mean, you've got pretty much all the characters doing something here. Uh, you've got her doing the, uh, yeah, it's just, if I had to distill this movie into like one of my favorite scenes, I think that's probably it right there. That and I like Buck playing with the ghost lion, but that's just kind of a fun moment. Yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, 13 Ghosts, you know, I think the first time I saw this, man, I know it's been a long time, but I think it was right after the 13 Ghosts remake came out. Ah. Uh, And I I went back and then decided to watch the original. And, um, man, I feel like I've seen it since then, but I can't remember when. You know, I mentioned the the, the scene with the ghost lion, uh, Buck. Charles Herbert, he's such a good kid actor. I, I, I know a lot of times it's easy to kind of roll your eyes at these kid actors like, oh, you know, whatever. But he plays it with such sincerity. I guess he was a Monster Bash guest. Uh, mm-hmm. on several occasions unfortunately i've never been to monster bash i hope to correct that in the future oh yeah but um I, you know i was going over his list of credits and you know lots of television in the 50s and 60s he was on a, a twilight zone uh, episode called i sing the body electric he was also in the original film version of the fly um but unfortunately according to what i was able to to gather from reading online and he was a child actor back in the era when all the money basically went to the parents and nothing was held back for the kids and so uh he had a very he was a very popular child actor but didn't have a whole lot to show for it in money wise because of you know just how things were set up back then it was a lot easier for uh kids to not get the money that was coming to them as a reward so yeah, it's kind of a, a, a kind of a disappointment in that sense, but he really did provide a lot of screen memories uh, for mm-hmm. folks. And here in particular, he's very engaging. He's smart, but he's not just a little adult. You know, he really is a child, but he's a smart, engaging child. And I think that's a difficult thing for people to pull off. And I think it probably not only points to his skill as a child actor, but also to William Castle's ability to bring that out. And to work with kids, I mean, that's what they always say, like, you know, working with kids and animals is, you know, two of the most (laughs) difficult things in in the world in entertainment. And they have a a very active kid in this movie who doesn't overshadow the rest of the actors, but is a very, at the same time, doesn't get overshadowed by them in this ensemble cast. And that really takes some doing, I think. Yeah. And the one person that kind of treats him as a, as a lesser or kind of talks down to him, gets his at the end of the movie. So exactly. you know, he, he gets to hold his own. I did get a chance to meet him once at a monster bash. I only met him the one time, uh, but he was a monster bash regular. And I think I've told this story here on the show before uh, my very first monster bash, I was having breakfast one day and then I was up before anybody else. Cause I was just so excited to be there. Uh, I was having breakfast and just kind of picking over some eggs or whatever. And there was this, uh, this gentleman and this this woman uh, at this other table kind of having their conversation and she stopped and looked at me and told me I looked familiar to her and I, I have no idea how she would have known who I was or whatever uh, but they introduced themselves and it was 
him and Beverly Washburn was the other person. So, uh, you know, <laughs> had a brief little conversation over breakfast uh, with, with uh, Charles Herbert and Beverly Washburn because she misremembered me from some somewhere else. Uh, right. and, and they were both really cool. He was such a nice guy. So engaging with all the fans, you know, willing to talk to anybody who was you know, wanting to talk to him. Um, I really wish I had a chance to spend more time with him because he was a really nice guy. But uh, yeah, it was just really cool. Um, the way he's treated in the movie, you know, he's their son and you can see their, his parents. I mean, they, they do tell him to go to bed and, you know, whatever, but they don't talk down to him. Like I said, he's, he's a fully developed character, just like everybody else. Exactly. And I think part of that has to do with Castle. Sure. Again, he's more than just a gimmick director. He knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the cast is solid, too. I, I really enjoyed watching that family dynamic, partly because they all took the paranormal at face value, which, I mean, that's the kind of family I would have loved to have grown up in. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. I also like how easily they respond to being foreclosed on at the beginning of the movie. I mean, it, it's it's the most, you know, like easygoing foreclosure ever, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and like the movers are coming in and everything. And it's just kind of like, you know, I would be a lot more upset about this. And the dad works every day, you know, but apparently working at a museum in L.A. back in 1960 didn't pay a whole lot because despite the fact that he works and everything, uh, uh, he can't afford to keep a roof over their head. So, uh, yeah, but it was, you know, the most lighthearted eviction that I I think I've ever seen on film. Um, (laughs) But, of course, you need to set up the eviction in order to set up their need for a house. And that's kind of what happens. But I do find it interesting how in a lot of William Castle's movies, there's this tie between money and trouble. And Mr. Sardonicus, there's the lottery ticket that's in the one character's pocket when he's buried and they have to dig him up to retrieve it. And then in The House on Haunted Hill, you have this other kind of thing where people are having to brave this thing for money. I like that this is not kind of like the gothic horror world where... Dracula, money is no option for him, right? He's a count, he's wealthy, etc. In William Castle's world, characters need money. That's kind of like the carrot that kind of takes them down path to an encounter with the supernatural or an encounter with just deceit or kind of like this more film noir uh, sort of elements where there's uh, trickery involved or something along those lines. And it just kind of runs throughout a lot of his films. And I'm, I'm just curious about that because my understanding is that Castle did not grow up with a lot of, of uh, money. So I wonder if that reflects some of his own ambivalence about money or, you know, kind of reflection of his own financial troubles when he was growing up. You know, I've got his biography here. Step right up. I'm going to scare the pants off America. Uh, his autobiography. But I still haven't read it. It's on my to-be-read pile. It's been there forever. I need to get into it because I'd like to learn more about his background and his growing up because that's also the impression I get. And and that's kind of where that approach comes from. Yeah, if I if I recall correctly, I think he was orphaned when he was a kid mm. and like left school early to work in show business, like at, at the you know bottom rungs of show business, like maybe when he was 15 years old. And yeah, I mean, this is somebody who on the one hand had to make was kind of forced into looking at money and financial matters at a relatively young age but on the other hand was not 
simply making movies just to make money. He was also having a lot of fun. I think, you know, money was obviously part of what he was after, but there are lots of ways to promote a movie and not all of them involve, you know, buzzers under seats or whatever, or, you know, these kind of fun glasses or whatever. There's, I think, a, uh, he's reveling in, in the goofy kind of carnival nature of it all. And so there's an honest love in addition to a, you know, kind of an obvious commercial motive. He knew what he was, I guess that was back to what I was saying earlier. He knew what he was doing. He wasn't just a gimmick guy. He worked the gimmick into making movies that were entertaining and fun. And, you know, I didn't have Ghost Fever watching it last night, but I still had a blast watching it. I would have loved to have had a Ghost Fever while I was watching it just to get that little extra oomph. I think the last time I went to the Lovecraft Film Festival, they showed The Tingler. And no, I didn't get a chance to sit in one of the seats that was rigged with the buzzer because they had some of the buzzers out but i still had a good time watching it anyway you know you know it's it's he was good at both and in balancing it all together so in the version that you watched did they have the ghost in there or was it completely absent of of visuals of the ghosts i was able to see it because they did go to the blue and then you'd see the red okay right okay so i was able to see that's what i had as well yeah and and that's another kind of technical part of this that i find fascinating is, you know, you have this um, film that incorporates scenes that are in color with scenes that are in black and white. And you have Margaret Hamilton in the mix, and she, of course she was in The Wizard of Oz. So I think Margaret Hamilton, it has to be one of the few actresses who have ever appeared in multiple films that work with both color and black and white in, within them. Good point. Something I hadn't thought about. Good point. I just found that to be kind of fun. And I don't know whether that was intentional or whether it was just a coincidence, but it is kind of cool that that was the case. And I can't think of too many films that did both that shot both in color and black and white. And so I don't know whether she had, whether she's the only actress who ever appeared in two films that uh, used both color and black and white, but it is kind of an intriguing trivia thing. That's something I hadn't thought about. You're, huh. I'm trying to think of all the other things I've seen her in. And it's not, I, I'm not overly familiar with her filmography, but I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. The, the version that I have with the going to, to the, the bluish coloring as William Castle puts it bluish. Right. <laughs> you would go to that and then you'd see the red superimposed, which I thought was a clever way to kind of give the audience a heads up for the one quote unquote ghost that shows up when everything doesn't turn all blue. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, if you're paying attention. Yeah. I thought that was a neat little way to kind of communicate that as well. And thank you so much, Nicole. You just sent me a message. I almost forgot. (laughs) Let's do this. Okay. So Nicole just sent me a message on Skype while we're talking here. And I needed a reminder because I was so eager to dive right into this. The Classic Five. We got to play a round of the Classic Five. The Classic Five. Thank you so much for reminding me. Let me uh, give the cards a good shuffle here. The Classic Five. It's a game that we play here on every episode of Monster Kid Radio uh, when I remember or I'm reminded. We're going to do five cards. Each card has a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question on them? There are no wrong answers. It's just a way to get monster kids talking. Not that Nicole and I are going to have a hard time coming up with something to talk about. But, you know, it's just a fun way to kind of talk some more about our favorite topic here on the show. Classic monster movies. Are you ready to play a round of the Classic Five, Nicole? I am itching to play the Classic Five. Thank you for reminding me. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Card number one, right off to, oh, my. Hammer Films or Universal? Oh, oh, um, yeah. I just right, right off the top there. Just give me the a doozy. Oh, boy. Hey, you asked for it. 
Yeah, I did. <laughs> in, in fairness, I'm going to go with Universal simply because I have fallen back in love with them after watching a lot of them on Spangoolie. Um, mm. And if you had given me this question probably 20 years ago, I would have said Hammer. But because I, I was, you know, as a kid, mostly exposed to Hammer films and not so much to Universal because they were playing a lot on the, you know, kind of like the horror movie shows that were on Saturday afternoons. But I've really come to appreciate the Universal films when I've watched them on Spangoolie. And there's just something about the performances of folks like Lugosi and Karloff uh, and something about even some of the the really uh, different ones like House of Horrors, you know, just all of that, you know, House of Dr- Dracula, House of Frankenstein, not, more the B picture sort sure. of universals that I really enjoy. Not more than a few months go by when I don't think about things like The Invisible Agent which right. is not one of their top tier movies, but I adore that film. There's just something about uh, the universal approach that it's warm and comforting and fun. And I just feel at home there. I love the hammer films too, but I think I feel more at home in universal land these days. Yeah, I, I think so. There, there's something. And of course, I think the very first horror movie I ever watched, the f- very first horror movie that I was er- ever allowed to watch was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. There you go. Uh, and I think I was allowed to watch that because it was Abbott and Costello. And I love that scene where, Abbott is reading about the the Frankenstein monster and, and reading about Dracula, you know, from the the uh, the House of Horrors exhibit and everything, and and uh, and he you know he starts to see the monsters move and everything, and and Costello is kind of acting out and kind of like going all over the place and shouting and and being Costello. And uh, as you're a kid, you really can relate to Costello in that situation because, you know, you're you see the monster and you're trying to tell, you know, the more grown up person that there's a monster and the real grown up person in this case being Bud Abbott doesn't believe the more childlike person, Lou Costello. And it's just a perfect entree into horror. I don't know. That's awfully silly stuff. I think he says so. <laughs> but, but but it's it, we love it anyway. I love it. I love and it. he saw what he saw when he saw it. That's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. Favorite actor to play Doctor Frankenstein. Oh, let's see. Favorite actor to play Doctor Frankenstein. I like Peter Cushing as Doctor Frankenstein because what he brings to it is a sense of real moral ruin to the character, especially as the series goes on. Initially, he's drawn by this need to create something perfect, right? He's trying to like his creature is supposed to have like the hands of of this, you know, of really you know skillful hands and a, the brain of a genius, and you know this body that's so imposing. And he, he's trying to create basically like the perfect specimen. And of course, in the Hammer uh, Frankenstein, there's that line from his uh, kind of colleague in the creation where that colleague is mocking Peter Cushing saying, you know, look at how, look at your creation, look at what you've done. Doesn't he look so perfect? This kind of thing. And I think from there on, you see just throughout the Hammer films going down all the way to Frankenstein and uh, the monster from hell, 
you see this kind of Dr. Frankenstein gets more and more kind of decadent and decrepit and insane. And I like that gradual destruction of his character. You can never go wrong with Peter Cushing. I, I'm not going to. No, you can't. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm often asked whether I'm related to him. And unfortunately, I can't say that I, I am. But um, gosh darn it. He was just on and off screen, such a uh, magnificent person from what I understand. Oh, yeah. I would have loved an opportunity to have met him. I just so this is one person that I wish I had run into at some point just because I, I just imagined him being as charming as he was on screen, you know? Oh, definitely. Very debonair and kind of courtly and kind of uh, a true gentleman in the old sense of the word, you know, and an English gentleman. And um, that is, of course, enough to get any any girl's pulse pounding, uh, you know, that kind of debonair kind of thing. And, <laughs> you know, so, you know, had I been, you know, uh, uh, around the same age that he was, who knows, I might have, I might have t- had a taking to uh, Peter Cushing, uh, especially, and he's at kind of athletic too. If you see what he did at the end of Horror of Dracula, where he's kind of, you know, he, he's, um, you know, diving and he's, you know, pulling the curtains to bring in the sunlight and uh, and destroy Dracula. I mean, he's kind of athletic. He's he's you know kind of like a smart jock in a way, um, which has always been you know one of the types I've been attracted to. So uh, <laughs> yeah, you know. Now, yeah, I, I love the the uh, the physicalness that he gets into, especially in like the fifties and sixties when he's just he's the guy doing all the work. I, I just I love it. I love it. Yes, definitely. All right, uh, let's see. We'll call that card two. This is card three. What classic monster movie would you like to see turned into a theme park attraction? Oh goodness. I'm not big on theme parks, in part because I'm old and uh, I don't like roller coasters, but I think I would like, you know, kind of like a dark ride, almost like, a you know, one of those old beach, you know, boardwalk haunted houses. And I think if that's the case, you go for something that is visually interesting yeah, so I'm going to go with something very – can you repeat the question just because I need to be reminded of the parameters of the film that we're looking at? So, uh, just, just what classic monster movie would you like to see turned into a theme park attraction? So really, yeah, Dark Ride works for me. Th- this is not a classic film, but it's, it's I think the most sincere answer I can offer is uh, I would love to see a Dracula versus Frankenstein theme park ride kind of recreating that film with Vandor Vorkov as as Dracula and everything <laughs> I, will, I would like to see a recreation of Dr. DeRay's boardwalk uh, museum wax museum and I would love to have someone there as Dr. DeRay and someone in there as the Lon Chaney Jr. character and all the hippies and everything they have never lived before as they live now One man has already died, and the other was never born. Both exist in a world between life and death. Both long to be human. Neither can ever be. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Ten dead men's bodies were used to fashion Dr. Frankenstein's infamous creature. Tens of dozens of victims have kept Count Dracula alive for three centuries. Only one of these beings will survive their meeting. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Brand new thrills, brand new horror, brand new shock. 
Dracula versus Frankenstein in color, rated GP. Such a theme park ride would never be made because the core audience would be me. And, you know, you can't make a theme park ride for an audience of one. But can you imagine, I mean, I would dig like all the like all the you'd have the hippies and you'd have like the original set from the original Frankenstein as part of it because they that was made in the laboratory. And you'd have like a Forrest J. Ackerman impersonator you know, involved in it maybe, and you'd have J- a J. Carol Nash impersonator and kind of an old uh, version of Lon Chaney Jr. impersonator, and you'd have the Zandor Vorkov impersonator with like the really bad Dracula makeup. So I can't think of anything more fun. I would love to go to uh, the ocean and hang out at a place like that. You say you'd be the core audience. That's one of my absolute favorite movies, and I don't care who knows it. I'd be there. T- there you go. I'd, I'd make a trip out of it. We just have to convince somebody to put up the money to do it. <laughs> a very unique Kickstarter opportunity is what we're looking there at. There you go. There. If there's any theme park people, you, there you go. Haunted attraction people, you have your mission statement. Make it happen. That would be fun. That would be a lot of fun. All right, uh, card number four. Who else could have or, oh, who else could have or should have played Frankenstein's monster? Well, you're looking for somebody. Well, here's what I kind of think of. You know, if you go back to the book, the monster is really tormented. The monster is tormented by the fact that he was created and abandoned. Here's an idea. I I think I'm getting the actors right. Was Conrad Veidt, the the somnambulist from Dr. Caligari, I think he would have made an interesting Frankenstein if you were to go with the original source material as this kind of bewildered creature who basically wants to be reunited with his father and doesn't like being ignored and doesn't like, you know, just being off alone. I think Dwight Fry, honestly, could have been another Frankenstein in that vein. It's a different sort of character. It's not a physically imposing character, but it's more of an alienated character. And I would have loved to have seen something like that. Conrad Veidt's an actor that I don't know enough about, but every time I see him in something, I just, I'm blown away by him because he's just so good. Yeah, those eyes. Can you imagine those eyes, you know, kind of doing Frankenstein kind of things and lurching through a kind of like German expressionist Frankenstein mountain setting, German expressionist Frankenstein castle? I would have loved it. I love that idea. I love it a lot. All right. Final card. Here we go. The Amazing Colossal Man or Attack of the 50-Foot Woman? Well, of course, I'm going to go with the attack of the 50 foot woman because I have to, you know, girls stand together and, um, (laughs) and I am very tall. So I always appreciate when there's a woman who's taller than me and 50 feet is taller than six feet. So there you go. Um, (laughs) So as arbitrary as that sounds, that is the correct answer for me. So I attack of the 50 foot woman. Once a normal, voluptuously beautiful woman, she drove into a nightmare of horror and saw descending from the sky a titanic monster whose fearsome touch became a frightful curse. What she saw was beyond belief until others, too, faced its hideous, uncontrollable menace. Attack of the 50-foot woman, incredibly huge, 
with incredible desires for love and vengeance. Girls rule. There you go. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, that was the Classic Five. Thanks again for reminding me to do it. The Classic Five. You want to get back to 13 Ghosts? I think so. We'll go from five to 13. There we go. As long as neither one of us are the 13th, I think we're okay. Yeah, totally. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, you know, the, the kid actor in this, but the rest of the cast is pretty solid, too. I, I really liked the dad a lot and, and the mother. Uh, the relationship they had, you were talking about them getting foreclosed upon and all that. I was so shocked that she was so like, oh, your dad's forgetful. Oh, well, yeah, you totally. know, She's very supportive. And that's the thing. It's like the people who don't have the money in, in these William Castle films, they're the happier ones, you know? Yeah. They're, they're getting tossed out on their ear, but at least they have each other. That's kind of really cool. Yeah. And I, I did like the chemistry between the two of them. There, there's maybe a little bit of friction about whether or not they should leave right away, that sort of thing, but nothing, nothing too overpowering. Uh, just again, you could tell they had some chemistry and, and I liked that. And I liked Medea a lot. He seemed to be a little bit older than a teenager. And I guess that the ages are a little bit like the dad seemed like he was more like around age 50 or so. And the mom seemed like she was around age 50 and the daughter looked like she was maybe in her mid twenties instead of a teenager. But that's kind of par for the course for a lot of films. Yeah. And uh, especially of that era. And then they have Buck and Buck, is I guess probably about eight or nine. So it, it, it doesn't quite line up, but yeah, I like the reaction when Medea sees Benjamin for the first time and she communicates very, very easily that she's infatuated with Benjamin. And she kind of is in that, you know, late fifties, early sixties mold of her success hinges on her ability to snag a good man, you know, and a young, attractive lawyer, you know, she's definitely has taken the bait and she's she's interested in him. And I, I like Benjamin, too. He was played by an actor um, named Martin Milner and uh, who later appeared on Adam 12 and Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In was among his credits. I'm not really sure where that would have been. Apparently, he was also on a Twilight Zone episode called Mirror Image. Huh. And uh, he made an appearance or two on Fantasy Island in the 70s. I like him because he is, on the one hand, uh, very uh, likable at the start. And as uh, things change, his character changes along with them. And I think he does that pretty skillfully. And he's able to pull off. There's an ending in the movie where... There is a comeuppance that happens, and his acting in that scene is particularly interesting to me, I think. He's one of the good guys until the money turns up, and then you realize, wait a minute, he's just playing all these people, and he starts having secrets with the kid, and you're like, oh, oh come on, you didn't... Uh. Yeah, that, those are kind of painful scenes to watch, where you see a guy who we were kind of rooting for turn out to be a real slime ball. Yeah. And, you know, of course, you know, you, you notice that Medea is being taken in by him. The little boy Buck is being, you know, taken in by him. And, and this guy is not all that he seems like he, like he is. And uh, he's not all that. And that he's a real danger. But then the ghosts are saying somebody's going to die tonight. And like, well, you know, it's not going to be any of the family. It's got to be the lawyer. Please let it be the lawyer. Please let it be the lawyer. Because, you know, at this point, he's he's no good. So, yeah, it was nice to see that kind of come up and happen. Uh, I did kind of get away from it real quick. I didn't mean to so quickly. Buck and Medea, best kids' names ever in a monster movie. 
Yeah, really. Well, you have all these Greek names in, in the family because I guess it's apparently they're supposed to be a Greek family. So it's the the uncle uh, was Doctor Plato Zorba, right. uh, <laughs> and uh, and then there's Cyrus Zorba, and then there's Medea. And whenever I think about Medea, there was a, a, a Greek tragedy called Medea. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, that kind of raises an eyebrow. But then they decided to be more traditional in naming their son, and they just went with Buck. <laughs> and so it's like, <laughs> you know, and I don't know whether that is short for anything or if there's like maybe his other, his formal name is Greek and Buck is just like a nickname or something. But yeah, he, Buck is just Buck. Um, <laughs> just and, Buck. Uh, yeah. and, he, and he's... He's looking for bucks. He, you know, Buck is looking for bucks because ah, he's looking for in the house. Good point. Uh, yeah, and so there's an interesting sort of uh, correlation there. Again, I don't know whether it's intentional or not, but I'm wary of treading too far into looking for symbolism in a William Castle film. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I wouldn't be surprised if it was there, though, if that was intentional or what. I I just wouldn't be surprised just knowing that he was more than just a gimmick filmmaker, that he knew what he was doing, and and I wouldn't be surprised if it's there. But even if it's not, it's a neat little kind of observation, and I'll I'll buy it. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. Uh, I love the look of the ghosts, and I know yes. I, I said earlier that the first time I saw this was after I saw the 13 Ghost remake, which I know, you know, it's what a 90s, early 2000s horror movie, gory, you know, bloody, whatever. It's got some interesting visuals, and they really went out of their way to paint the ghosts as individual characters in that. That said, I still love the look of the ghosts in this one better. It's just something neat about it. I can't recall if I've seen the remake or not. I, I I'm in generally, I'm not fond of remakes. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of like that. We have this film called Thirteen Ghosts, and if we want to, we can always go back and watch it if we want it. And mm-hmm. so, I'm not really sure. For me, at least, maybe for a younger demographic, it would be a different story. But for me, I really don't see the appeal to it. So yeah, I mean. I think the visuals here work very well. They almost seem to me like the kind of ghosts you would see in an EC horror comic. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's that EC horror kind of vibe to when the ghosts show up. Almost the, the, the colors almost seem like EC horror kind of colors. And even in the end, when Ben gets his comeuppance, there's that scene where he's kind of like cowering and he has his hands up. And it looks like something that you might see in, either in EC Comics or in the the Creep Show movie years later, George Romero's Creep Show, where they were mm-hmm. trying to basically simulate the EC comic effect with some of the lighting that they did during the comeuppance scenes. I, and that's what I like about it. And it kind of carries when when you have that style of that visual style going on. It really, in retrospect, from our perspective, I think makes me think of, oh, yeah, this kind of has like an EC vibe to it, which is equal parts goofy and disturbing. And that's what I like. Who's your favorite ghost among the ghosts? Was it the the lion? Did did you say that was your favorite? I like the lion scene a lot, but I think the one that was most unnerving to me in terms of ghost scenes is whoever is doing the chopping and getting their head chopped off at the fireplace. That to me was just super disturbing to me. And I don't know why that one amongst all the other ones, but that one sticks with me. I think probably my favorite ghost was Plato, the ghost, the ghost of Plato Zorba himself. Oh, just yeah. because, 
you know, he has an interesting look. There's a scene during the seance scene. Visually, you see the ghost inhabit the body of the father, Cyrus, and, and you see that happen. But just the look of that, that ghost, and it, I think, was really impressive to me. I, and I like the lion tamer, too. I like that the lion tamer didn't have a head. It was a nice touch. Nice touch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he, that he keeps on, like, basically kind of looking for his head down there or something. It's kind of like <laughs> a, little, a little bit of gallows humor. You know, it's like he's putting his head, you know, as if he wants the, the lion to swallow his head. But the head's already been chewed off, so... That's an interesting look, definitely. I think there's another ghost that's like hanged or something. You know, I think there's a ghost swaying from a noose or something, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they're all uh, in their own way interesting. And I think it was probably fun to come up with all these backstories of different ghosts. I mean, it's one of these things that if you think about it in a haunted house, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, there are all these ghosts in this house, but there's another thing to come up with all these interesting visual kind of ways that the ghosts can manifest themselves. And, you know, this one was a chef, so he's going to look like this, and he's going to carry a cleaver, and he's going to make a mess <laughs> out of the kitchen. And, you know, that takes a little bit of imagination to do it, to, to portray each ghost in a way that they have a separate identity uh, that's distinctive, but also something that can be communicated visually so that they are distinct. So it's not just a bunch of ghosts in Victorian outfits or something, but you have one that's a chef and you have one that's a lion tamer and the other one that's a lion and it makes them distinct. That's just Emilio. <laughs> yeah, he does this every once in a while you know but i love the kids just like yeah no big deal and i know part of it's you know the innocence of childhood whatever accepting whatever and you know they haven't grown to be cynical about the world yet so i get that but i just love herbert you know charles herbert's ah it's just you know emilio it's okay it's all good you know just stay out of his all way right, well, you know? Yeah, he's, he's one of these kids in movies that is really drawn to the paranormal, and he's really drawn to horror stories. As a horror writer, I really appreciate that Buck was absorbed into a book. He wasn't drawn, you know, he wasn't like, didn't have his, his nose up to the TV or anything. He was, Buck was of a generation where kids actually like read and, <laughs> and, and he was reading a, a book of horror stories and they couldn't pull him away from it. I was kind of wondering, like, I wonder what stories he's reading in that anthology. Is, is he reading like Lovecraft or something? Is he reading Poe? You know, that's kind of where my imagination goes into those the stories that Buck is reading that he can't get his eyes away from. Yeah, his openness to the paranormal is not that different, I suppose, from the openness that kids in real life supposedly have towards the paranormal. You know, just that openness, but also the way he plays it as a easygoing kind of way. And, and it just seems natural with the actor's performance. First of all, yes. I also wanted to know what stories was in that book. Uh, <laughs> second of all, I guess I have three points. Second of all, he couldn't have watched TV if they wanted to, because the movers probably moved that out too. And That's true. <laughs> but third, mo mostly though, he's us. He, he, we're yeah, the monster kids. We're the ones that want to see the ghosts. You know, yeah, we're the ones that want to read the horror stories and, and immerse ourselves in the scary, spooky stuff, you know? He's the entry point for us monster kids for this movie, I feel like. Definitely. That's an excellent observation. I couldn't say it any better. But it goes beyond him, too. I mean, even the father's boss at the museum. Oh, yeah, he used to collect ghosts. And uh, I guess there's money in the house, too. Nothing surprises anybody here. <laughs> right, right. No one's like, there is, are, is no skeptic involved. 
Uh, and it's, you know, I think at one point he's like, oh yeah, these were real ghosts. And, you know, it's kind of uh, pleasant to have that because you're just kind of going along with the ride. You're not questioning if you had uh, another director taking a similar story, you'd have like, well, this down and out family is imagining things and they're so traumatized by their economic despair that they're seeing things that aren't actually there. And you can have a very like Stanley Kubrick version of 13 ghosts where the ghosts are all the, the fears of their economic deprivation or something, but that wouldn't be fun and goofy. No, <laughs> you know? that wouldn't be fun at all. That'd be kind of depressing. Oh, you know, they're, they're, yeah, feeling, totally depressing. they're coping like, with their for- unfortunate. Uh, yeah, no, no, man. It's just ghosts. <laughs> They're ghosts, yeah, and they're ghosts that you can see through this goofy kind of set of glasses that uh, when a fly lands on the uh, glasses, the fly is zapped because the glasses are so have some kind of electrical energy. Now, but they don't zap the person who wears them. Apparently, it only will, like will zap an insect. So the glasses that you can see the the ghosts with also uh, double as a fly zapper, which is kind of cool. Um, <laughs> You know, great for picnics. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and there's that scene where the father has his first vision of the ghost, I think, where he goes down at night and he's putting them on and there's like this spiral uh, and he gets branded with the number 13 on his arm. He just looks so, you know, kind of confused and it almost looks like he's having a drug experience or something. I mean, he looks Ooh. really kind of like he's his he's going somewhere else that scene always kind of is interesting to me it's kind of surreal and we don't think of of william castle as being a surrealist by any you know stretch of the imagination and yet here he is doing something that's very odd almost in the same kind of way that you see corman do some odd things in all of the house of usher where you have or some of the other poe pictures where you know there's almost like a little art film vibe there and it's certainly not permeating the entire film. I don't think uh, Thirteen Ghosts would ever be accused of being an art film, but uh, <laughs> but there is in that scene at least. There's this little window of you know kind of strangeness that is sufficiently strange to you know make it seem almost the kind of thing that david lynch cooked up that's another thing i'd like to see david lynch's 13 ghosts yeah i was just thinking i don't want i don't see kubrick's but uh, david lynch's 13 ghosts could be really interesting or werner herzog's 13 ghosts oh wow yes (laughs) yes oh man that'd be amazing to see too yeah what kind of gimmicks would he come up with? That's what I'd be concerned about. No, it, it would be, they would be depressing gimmicks, whatever they would yeah. be. They would be, they would be depressing gimmicks. They would, you know, I, I don't know. You'd, you'd leave with your own personal ghosts that, you know, they would be giving out actual ghosts and the ghost would be tormenting you for the rest of your life until you gave it to someone else. And the way to give it to someone else is you had to give it to someone else who has seen the movie. And so the movie perpetuates this curse and, you know, et cetera, going on and on from there. Um, yeah. So I don't know that, that, that wouldn't sound to be good, spooky fun, but uh, yeah, I can see it happening. I love it though. I love it nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Don't give that man any idea. So um, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm quite happy with this version of 13 goats. Now that I think about it. <laughs>
I would be remiss. Uh, I wouldn't be me if I didn't say that I love the music in this. I'm not going to go into it too much because I can't find the music anywhere else. Uh, this was uh, Vaughn Dexter as the composer, and he did a, uh, a number of William Castle productions. I wish the music existed as a standalone soundtrack because I'd be listening to it all the time. It just kind of adds to the the whole thing for me just from the very first frame of the film when you have like the the opening music and the visuals at the beginning it's you just know you're in for a good time um you know that's the thing i would say about this film for folks who um are interested in maybe checking it out is if you're looking for a pleasant distraction from everything that has gone downhill for the last two years (laughs) you know it's like um (laughs) We're looking for a pleasant distraction from our COVID and all the other troubles that we've had. This is just a really fun, pleasant, spooky distraction that you're going to have fun with. And, you you know, you don't have to think about COVID or politics or anything. It's just good old-fashioned carnival horror sort of feel to it. I mean, it's, it's not set in a carnival, but I mean, it has that sense of... 13 Ghosts makes me feel the same way that I feel when I go to the Georgetown Drive-In for their uh, creepy cruise-in, you know, most years. Um, and uh, some of you may be familiar with this. This is an event that Dr. Gangreen shows up at every year where they do a bunch of horror movies shown on the screen. And they the drive-in really does a fun job of playing, you know, some old car novelty tunes over the speakers before the show. And they, they have like really kind of fun decorations that are kind of cheesy too. They don't mean them to be cheesy, but they kind of are, but that kind of adds to the mix. And it's that kind of same feel that we get in 13 Ghosts, where it's just fun, 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 fun. And also some genuine scares that some of the jump scares got me, even after I'd already seen the movie, some of the jump scares got me. So you have fun Ouija board seances, uh, jump scares, uh, treachery, you have romance, you have all of these different aspects to the film. And what more can you ask for, folks? Go out and watch this and take in the wonder that is William Castle and the wonder that are all these wonderful performances and do it now. Don't wait. Run, don't walk to your computer and order it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great way to put it. You know, I, I can't imagine that people listening to this have not seen this movie. Uh, but on the off chance you have not, you've heard what Nicole said. And, uh, you know, I've read some of her stuff, so you don't want to cross her. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, just. <laughs> I'm so loving and everything. I'm so, like, fun loving and whatever. But the, get me behind the keyboard and uh, <laughs> and get me, get me to writing a, a horror story. And, yeah, things get pretty darn disturbing. So I'm just uh, saying, you know. <laughs> Yeah, but personally, I wouldn't hurt a fly. But those goggles might, so, you know. Yes, yes. This movie, it's it's a real treat, and a real treat to revisit this movie after so long, and to have you back on the show. It's been a long time, so I'm, I'm really glad that uh, you reached out to me about doing this movie uh, again, and yeah, this was just a lot of fun to revisit, and to reconnect with you, and to chat with you a little bit more, too, so this was awesome i'm grateful to be back and uh, we'll have to do it again sometime in the future oh please please you got anything coming up book wise or anything the listeners can keep an eye out for well right now the main thing i'm doing is focusing on patreon uh, okay so as far as what's available right now 
I do writing classes on Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash Nicole Cushing, and that is spelled N-I-C-O-L-E-C-U-S-H-I-N-G. If you go there, you'll find out more about what I'm offering as far as writing instruction and that sort of thing. Also doing just um, some updates about what's going on with my work in progress. I'm currently about almost halfway through the next novel, continuing to work away at that. And uh, in the meantime, Patreon is my main creative and doing, you know, mostly nonfiction writing there, but doing writing nonfiction about the fiction writing process or doing classes on Patreon and that kind of thing. Well, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. You started to spell it out and I was about to say, Nicole, this is Monster Kid Radio. We know how to spell Cushing. (laughs) Listen to William Castle whom the Saturday Evening Post calls the master of movie horror. Do you believe in ghosts? I do. And you will too. When you come to this theater and see my picture, 13 Ghosts, Uh, no more dictation today. When you see 13 Ghosts, you'll be given a supernatural viewer like this, which will enable you to penetrate for the first time into the spirit world. It will let you see all 13 of our weird, wonderful, and wildly assorted ghosts. Now, brace yourself as we take you across the threshold of our haunted mansion, where there's a ghost for everyone in the family. Father, mother, sister, brother. You'll be scared stiff, too, when you see what they see. 13 ghosts materializing in ectoplasmic color through the magic of Illusiono, the ghost viewer. The ghost of a lion in the basement. The ghost of a murderous cook in the kitchen. Stop it! Stop it, I say! The ghost who speaks through the lips of the living. Death tonight to one of you. The evil ghost in the bedroom, fighting to take possession of this beautiful girl. You'll feel all the thrills and chills of seeing one ghost multiplied by the magic number 13. Okay, here we are at the end of the episode. I want to thank everybody who was involved in the podcast this week. Of course, Kenny and Mark knocking it out of the park with their regular segments. And Nicole... Thank you. Thank you for reminding me to play the Classic Five with you halfway through our conversation. But thanks for wanting to talk about a William Castle film. Like I told you during the recording, like I said here on the show, I have not read the autobiography that I have of his, but I know I need to. And now I really want to. I'm going to move it up further on my to-read list. The name of that book is Step Right Up. I'm going to scare the pants off America. You can pick it up on paperback. I'm going to make sure there's a link in the show notes. You can pick it up if you go through the Amazon link. You're helping us out a little bit because we're an Amazon affiliate. And tell you what, you want to read some of Nicole's books too. So I will have some of the books of Nicole Cushing also available as Amazon affiliate links to check those out as well. And of course, 13 Ghosts on Disc. That'll be in the show notes as well. And it looks like there's an upcoming Blu-ray release from Indicator coming out as well. You can pre-order right now. Where are these show notes? Well, you can find them on the website over at monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find links to everything that we've talked about here on the show. You're going to find our contact information, which is, uh, hey, Monsters in the Machine, let them know how to get a hold of us. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 
503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. Thank you very much for that. You can also find links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Twitter, our Discord, and everything else that we've got going on. Plus, I'm going to put a note in the show notes to let you know what we're talking about next week. But, you know, as much as I want you to go to the show notes, I'm just going to tell you now. Next week, Troy Howarth is going to be on the show. He's coming back, and we're going to be talking about a movie from the 1970s, Horror Express. For two million years in these subterranean caves, a creature of superhuman evil was entombed in a wall of ice, waiting to be free, waiting to live again. Travel with us on a journey into a world where nightmare becomes reality. that lived two million years ago, got onto that crate, killed the baggage man and put him in there. Yes, I am. It's alive. It must be. Travel with us, if you dare, on the Horror Express. Troy is an author, a film historian. He does a number of movie commentaries for DVDs and Blu-rays, and he took some time out of his schedule, not once, but twice, to talk about Horror Express with us here on the show. You'll have to come back next week to understand what I mean by doing it twice. But yeah, that's what we're doing next week here on the show. I hope you come back for that. If you want to watch some movies with us and a number of the other Monster Kid Radio Irregulars, you can do that on Saturday, starting at 11 a.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash Radio. We're going to start the pre-show then in the noon. The movies are going to start. We're doing nothing but anthology films this Saturday for a good seven, eight hours. We're going to be showing from Parts Unknown. This is a movie that just came out last year. It had its premiere at a drive-in. It's written by and stars Dr. Gang Green. You don't want to miss that. That's going to be playing on Saturday. As well as Christopher R. Mims Late Night Double Feature, a silent German film called Waxworks, a whole bunch of episodes of Theater Fantastique from Ansel Farage, and a whole bunch of other anthology-type stuff. You're going to want to come back for that. It's going to be a blast. I can't wait for that. And then on Tuesday, we're doing some science fiction movies where we're going to be showing the movie Night of the Blood Beast and The Body Stealers. That happens at 3.30 p.m. Pacific, and that goes for a few hours. And at the end of the night, we also talk about Star Trek with Jeff Polier. So come back for that. Come back for Saturday, come back for Tuesday, or just come back next week for Horror Express content. Whatever you do, just come back and maybe bring a friend. Between now and then, though, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song from the album that is copyright 2021 Coastal Surf Club. You can find them over at coastalsurfclub.bandcamp.com. Follow the link in the show notes, pick up their $3 digital album, and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week.
Ciao. 